I'm having trouble controlling myself here. We're just very excited. And uh, she's been so gracious. And she said, absolutely. Come on, let's go. And uh, but she just did this huge, this huge monumental. She does. Actually, if you read, Jamie did another outstanding job of doing research. If you read all the stuff this 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 woman has done in her life it's it's no surprise that she's where she is because uh she's she's done about everything uh we're going to refer to her as dr Lori. uh that's a, a nickname the fireman gave her because it was easier for them to remember and uh we're just going to kick around there's uh, six big topics that came out of the summit that was held at the fire academy or, or the emergency training center and um I will tell you if you, so the, the, there's a copy of that report in, in the, chat, the room. chat room. That's number one. Number two, if you look back a um, couple weeks or a couple months, uh, last month, Jeff Morissette, as always on top of the ball, had sent it out to everybody as an attachment to one of the listservs. Uh, now, if you get your camera thing out and hit that QR code, you can actually watch the, I call it testimony, but the presentations that were done uh, as part of the summit. And I got to tell you something. There was a day I learned some stuff that I never thought of. Uh, and I'll give you the, it makes so much sense, but I, we would have never thought about that. We've talked about cancer rates and everything else. There's a real big problem uh, following uh, female firefighters with cancer. It's not enough of them. There's no bulk. There's no, there's no, there's no quantity to actually see a whole lot of movement or deal with packages. So it's some of those things they talked about were actually very, very interesting is that it's not stuff you would normally think about. So that was pretty good. So uh, Dr. Way, would you just do me a favor? Uh, I know you've had it. You're primarily, I, I, I shouldn't say that. It's not right. You have had a big analytical data background. Can you just go for a couple of minutes and, and give us the, the the highlights of where you came from and you know and, and that kind of stuff for us to bring so everybody's up on the same page? I'd be happy to. Hi everyone. Uh, good evening. I'm Lori Moore Merrill, and I'm uh, your U.S. Fire Administrator. So I want to thank you uh, for having me here. So really excited to be able to spend a little time with you this evening. Appreciate the time. So yeah, I went. Uh, I went on the job. I grew up in Tennessee, first of all, uh, in Nashville, but I went on the job in Memphis, Tennessee in 1987. So nobody start counting now to see uh, how long that's been. But I went on the job back in 1987. I was the sixth woman hired in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Memphis Fire Department. In fact, the chief of Memphis right now, uh, I trained her in recruit school. So I was actually instructing in the recruit school when she came on. So um, that's uh, my legacy there. But I stayed on the job about seven years before being recruited to the IAFF. And so in 1993, uh, late 1993, I was uh, recruited over to be the EMS specialist at the IAFF. And that was a time when we were really starting to take hold, really, of fire-based EMS and uh, see where we are now, right? That, that is uh, the majority of what we do throughout the country is uh, emergency medicine. And so um, I went into the IFF, I spent 26 and a half years there and ended up doing quite a bit of research, uh, particularly in the operations um, spectrum, looking at uh, crew size, 
looking at deployment. And so a lot of what is in, uh, particularly the NFPA 1710 standard, a lot of what we do in that, um, the space of effective response force, a lot of what we do with standards of cover. Um, so that was sort of what I ended up um, doing with a lot of research at the IFF. And then I retired from there in 2019, just before COVID, um, and started uh, the International Public Safety Data Institute, which uh, took over the Fire Cares project and the Infors project uh, back then uh, that had been sort of driven by a team approach with NIST. Uh, you guys are familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so we've done a lot of collaboration with NIST over the years and a number of other organizations as well. And so IPSDI, um, was established and uh, became really the leader in, uh, in fire service data. And then um, when President Biden was elected, uh, he asked me to, uh, to serve on the transition committee. And so I uh, was part of the Biden-Harris transition team and dealt primarily with uh, inside FEMA, uh, the COVID cell is what we were called, the COVID team. And uh, the fire administration, of course, sits inside FEMA. And so I uh, also reviewed back then the fire administration as part of the transition. And so after that, I was tapped uh, to come in as the fire administrator. And so I was actually received my commission uh, in October of 21. So I've been here just, uh, just going on a year and a half at this point. Wow. And so uh, trying to, uh, to shake it up here a bit, but that's my path. And, and you've been busy. <laughs> yes. In a short period. Yes, we have. Well, I think one of our guys, John Oates, is, did he go into where you were? He did. Uh, he became the CEO, took my seat over at IPSDI, and is doing a great job there. I listened to him uh, do his presentation, and he did a really good job. And and to and he could actually put out a fire in a in a phone booth with a hose wag. It's a it's a it's a John Oates joke. You 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 understand it. <laughs> um. So what, what's been your, what do you think has been your biggest challenge? Wow, that's a on? great question. Since coming in here, um, the biggest challenge, I can tell you that uh, when I arrived, the first thought that I had after about a month here was, you know, what was I thinking, uh, taking this on, right? Um, but uh, it is, it's a worthwhile venture because the USFA as probably, you know, I'm probably speaking to the choir here, the USFA had really become quite irrelevant to the fire service as a whole. We have national organizations that were leaning forward and doing a lot of the things that really the USFA should be leading. And so um, I knew that from the outside, I knew it when I was coming in, but it became much more evident once on the inside. And so um, the biggest thing I wanted to do is to make USFA relevant, to reestablish it as the leader of the fire service uh, across the US. And I tapped um, all of our national organizations to come along, stand with me to raise this um, entity up. Because if we can elevate the USFA, particularly inside government, then you begin to get a lot more attention on the fire service at large. And so we did that. That was really the, the, one of the biggest challenges and why we did the summit that you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. We looked at, uh, you know, as you do when you enter a new organization, one of the first things that you should do as a leader is assess how it became what it was, what it's supposed to be, has it straight from the track or is it on track, right? And so I went back and looked at all of the legislation that surrounded yeah. the USFA 
we were actually established, uh, you know, there was a fire uh, prevention and control uh, conference held yes. in 1947, yes. right? By President, President Truman. Truman, Truman, yep. Yes, and so after that, uh, that spawned uh, the 1973 America Burning Report, which then uh, sort of spawned the legislation that created the USFA. Well, given that, then the USFA had some tasks in that legislation, and I went back and, and I uh, looked at those, what we're supposed to be doing. And, and frankly, I'll be very frank with this group, we weren't doing the majority of them. USFA was not doing what it was supposed to be doing. One of them was an annual conference. We're supposed to be since 1974, hosting an annual conference on fire prevention and control, and it had never been done. And so I said, well, that's the, you know, we're gonna do this. Um, and so we did in October, we held that summit. And we're going to be doing that every October during Fire Prevention Week. And nice. so we'll start to expand that by invitation, with by invitation only this time. We'll start to look at how better to do that. But as you know, what came out of that was this national strategy. And another effort that I think is even bigger than, than our task, even though they're quite large, the, the national strategy, is the fire service coming together. I had people, if you all watched it at all, if you haven't, please go back and check it out as you suggested. Um, every head of the major organizations came together, sat at the same table and spoke about a fire service issue, but they didn't speak for their organization. They spoke for the whole of the fire service. And that's huge because that's how we get movement. If we stand together, and not just as the IFC or the IFF or the NVFC or NFPA, but we stand as the whole of the fire service. Then we can move things. We can make a difference. We can have an impact. And so that's what everyone has decided to do. And it's called the fire service one voice. If you haven't seen that on social media, that's a hashtag we started tagging. Everybody is using it. So any... Um, Social media that you do, everybody's supposed to end it with hashtag fire service one voice. And so we are collaborating in ways that we have never done before uh, in that space. And that's an important piece. So I think that the question was, what was the biggest thing facing me? I think it's that um, we've got the data system uh, that is no small feat that I'm happy to talk about <laughs> as well. Uh, the Infra's data system, which is... Uh, as you all know, I don't have to tell anybody it's problematic, it's beyond problematic. Um, so we are, are definitely gonna be making changes in the, the data system. And by changes, I mean standing up a new one um, and a cloud-based system, an analytics platform that's very powerful. Um, and we'll be by 2025 decommissioning and shutting down the old inverse system. So in the next two years, you're going to see us stand up a new uh, fire service data system. So, so a month ago, as a matter of fact, we had the leaders of the, we call them the five families or seven families in the state here having this conversation about the next legislative uh, session and the three things that we, that they, uh, that they think are important. And again, that whole conversation was one band, one voice, right? One sound, right? We're all going to say this. We're not going to, if something else, opportunity pops up, that's fine, but we're not going to sacrifice the big, the big uh, deals that we're looking on for the, these little things. We're not going to talk bad about it, 
but when it comes to the, the group, um, so that kind of makes me feel good that in our state, those leaders have gotten together to kind of to kind of head down that to head down that path. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, that's great to hear. I, I should also mention that we have uh, students from the Springfield Techn Technological Community College here tonight with their instructor, Chief Pete Bonomi. They will be uh, tuning in as we go. All right, so let's go, let's, let's walk down the, uh, let's talk about the six uh, priorities. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read them out rather than and try to paraphrase them. Prepare all firefighters for the climate-driven increase in wildland, in the wildland urban interstates, WUI, something I learned today, by providing them with the proper training and equipment. So Mike, my, being a, a community risk reduction guy, my thought, pro, thought process is we start at the beginning before we have the emergency, right? And, I, and I'm not positive when it, when it comes to the urban wildland or, or interface that we're there. I mean, I've seen, we've had some kids in my class, they, the fire department brings a chipper around on the first Saturday of the month and chips up all your brush for you. You drag it to the street, they chip it up because it was in Colorado. And so let's get rid of the stuff that'll burn, right? So there were some things, but I don't know if, you know, what was the thought process with the group as to where that was gonna go? Oh, that's an excellent question. So yes, that's the first of the national strategy uh, efforts. Um, and so preparing us uh, in the structural environment for wildfire. And I wanna be very purposeful in what I say, because one of the things that we keep encountering is people talking about wildland fire. Wildland fire, uh, and that is what Congress knows. That's what even the president speaks about it that way. We all talk about wildland fire, which that's what they, they say, but what they mean is interface fire because trees often burn. We've seen the forest burn for a hundred years, hundreds of years, right? And in fact, that's what propitiates the, the forest. Yeah. Yeah. So having vegetation burn in the wildland is not that big a problem. When it becomes problematic is when it encroaches now on where we have cleared vegetation and put built environment. We put homes, we put businesses. Uh, we have people living in what used to burn uh, on purpose. It's a very fire-prone geography. And yet we put homes there and expect it's not going to burn. And this is something that we have to talk about because now this is a different type location. It used to be wildland, it's no longer wildland. It is now what we call the interface or the intermix or all the way into suburbia, yeah. right? Because we have these locations, wildland's a location, interface is a location, intermix is a type, is a location or type of community. And then of course, suburban and urban. Wildfire is the entity we're dealing with. And so we have to speak about this differently because if we don't, then we still are getting resources sent to the, um, all resources are going to one place, um, over to forestry, US Forest Service, over to the interior, Department of Interior. FEMA gets money to clean up the mess after a big disaster, uh, a fire. And we in this um, structured fire environment are not getting the resources we need to prepare for this. That's our PPE and training. So in this national strategy, what we're talking about is making sure that we are training all structural firefighters, urban, rural, suburban, all of them, tribal, territory, everybody, 
in the interface firefighting strategies and tactics. What that means is it's not just one structure fire you pull up, you know what to do, right? We get launch an interior attack or we go in defensive strategy, whatever it is on a single structure. But when you pull up in an area where the entire cul-de-sac is on fire, or you pull into an area where there's uh, you know a hundred structures burning, now what strategies and tactics do you use? And so I'll give you the example. This was happened, and I'm going to quote a chief from Boston Fire. There was a, uh, a battalion chief who was asked, Boston was asked to send 100 firefighters to help in a suburban community outside their jurisdiction. Uh, could you come and help us? We've got a wildfire, right? They sent the, uh, the engines, trucks over. They all start pulling in and do what they do. They pull down the street. They start hooking to hydrants and flowing water. Well, what do they they don't know what they're doing, right? In fact, the chief says, I, we didn't know what we were doing, but I know what we were doing was wrong. And that is very telling. And if we, I'm talking about Boston, one of the major urban centers, right? It's all urban. Yeah. We have to look at these communities because every structured firefighter may not be in your community, but it may be in your neighboring community or you're called to cover, or you're called to help. Everybody's got to be trained in these different strategies and tactics when there are multiple structures on fire. And of course, our PPE is still the challenge uh, with breathing apparatus for our wildland uh, system and even different kinds of SCBA potentially for the interface. And, and it's, it's crazy because you send a city or a municipal engine company into the woods with you and you'll you'll come off the truck everybody's got all their gear on their helmet their coat and they're, and they're standing next to a kid who's got the you know the yellow shirt on a pair of jeans and some instruction shoes and they're going you're going to last about five minutes you need to you need to change now on the other hand i'm glad you brought up because if you if you talk to the 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 uh, respiratory people you know taking a bandana or even one of these fancier ones now that they have and putting it over your face, you're still sucking a lot of stuff in. That's, and, and people don't understand that we can still get some of those chemicals out of woods, out of the wood, woods, right? If you talk to some of the doctors, they don't want you smoking meat because it's, it's not good. There's acids and toxics and stuff that come out of there. So it can be really, really crazy. One of the things that they, I think the Forest Service does do well because unfortunately they've had um, too much opportunity here to, to need to do this, is they do a good job of, serve, of, of, of um, sharing learning lessons. Um, it's pretty amazing that, you know, they're probably, when they, they have a tradition, for lack of a better term, of dying together, they, whether it's rolling a van off the side of a hill, or a helicopter going down, uh, a, 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 you know, a flashover or whatever you know it might be they have a tendency to lose a lot of people when i'm down in october the thing that breaks my heart is we got this you know 18 year old parents and grandparents are there or 21 year olds you know grandparents and parents are there and and uh, you know they hear this kid died uh, out and because the wind shifted or something and you could get it again you take a city boy and put him out in the country you can put him in, he can get himself in a bad spot very, very, very quickly. And that's a, that's a different uh, kind of, again, strategies and tactics, appropriate training for the location where you're fighting fire. 
that's where we have to raise the awareness because we can, we have great training for structure to wildland and we have training for wildland to structure. This is not what we're talking about with this strategy. We're talking about fighting fire in the interface when there are multiple structures with little defensive space because the community may not be what we refer to as fire adapted. We want to see fire adapted communities in this one third now of our population that lives in what we would define as the interface. And yet they have no idea of the risk of fire that they are enduring. And so it is very important too, that our firefighters who now are structural firefighters and because we've now annexed what is now interface, we have to understand how to fight fire in that space. So this is a, this is a huge piece and a, a big piece of understanding that all of the fire service has got to come to grips with. Oh, absolutely, it kind of segues. The reason a lot of those extra companies are there is because of this question right here, or this point here. Invest in a national apprenticeship program to address the shortage of firefighters and to make the fire service more diverse and more, inclu and more inclusive, right? Out, yes. here, out here, we have cadets and juniors. In Connecticut, we have an interesting movement, lack of movement, trying to do something uh, with bringing those young, those young folks up. But also in Connecticut, we have a lot of child labor laws and there's a lot of debate whether even, and we're a, a, an OSHA state, so there's a lot of debate there. But let's talk about this from a global picture because that's, where, that's what, why you're here. <laughs> Absolutely. So in that national strategy, um, we are looking at the recruitment problem across the nation. And this recruitment problem exists with um, career and volunteer combination. It's across the board. We are seeing numbers that are drastically lower than we normally get for an application period, right? Uh, our recruitment period, where you would have, particularly in our uh, suburban and urban you know, fire departments, we'd get 2,500 to 3,000 to 5,000 you know, applications when you would have an open application period. They're down to 700, 400, two, I mean, it's, it is a vast difference in the pool. And so what we're also encountering is not only is the pool smaller, but then trying to identify within that pool, people who can first of all get through a background check. And then second of all, once they are selected and get through the backgrounds and the preparatory uh, vetting, then getting them through recruit school is another challenge. And so um, understanding that we've got multiple gates into our recruitment process, um, and how do we need to look at that? Is there another way that we can use, and maybe it's using volunteer departments as feeders for career departments, or maybe it's using community colleges or technical schools and recruiting there and having them do the preliminary EMT schools, for example. And we've got some of these models sort of scattered around the nation that we're trying to identify, put them on some sort of grid so we can start to look at them and say, okay, is that a best practice? And so for each of these strategies, maybe we should have said this up front, but for each of these strategies that we're going to go over, there is a work group that is working that problem. And they're going to be bringing back recommendations um, to uh, me mid-year. We're going to have a discussion and see what else they need to identify between then and October. And at the summit in October, they'll be delivering out their actionable recommendations for each of these strategies. But this one is a big one. And, and the point again... The, the committees are not single single focus. Again, they're a diverse 
they're a diverse uh, uh, committee. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, one of the speakers said, because you're handing out applications in a minority community and you have your door open, that's not recruiting. That's just that's just passing around paper. That's not that's not how you recruit. And then and that doesn't matter whether you're in Philadelphia or out here in East, you know, in a, in a very rural community or suburban community. Um, you know, it's like it, it, the advertising and the reaching out has to be just always, always, always there. I think it's I, more about marketing, isn't it? Uh, rather absolutely. than just and, what we call post and pray. Uh, it is more about us marketing the fire service and growing our own candidates in many cases, starting with junior high and explorers or high school and technical training uh, or tech school, right? Uh, community colleges and starting to grow our own uh, recruits and, and let um, early on, let kids know that, you know, let them see themselves as a firefighter, let them understand this is an option. So I think that's an important piece. One of our chiefs, Sherry, uh, you know, her point in her group is that we need to be able to have, and it's whether it's male, female, whatever, we need to make sure the students understand, the students are given the, the, the ability to learn. CPATs is a big, is a big discussion, is make sure they understand if you just do this and we'll give you, we'll, we'll supply the vest or you can go to this training center it will host it in the rec department and whatever it takes to get the one of the issues we had at our recruit academy was grammar and writing and understanding deductive deductive reasoning and so their test scores were to the point where they had to retest and retest that's all front end stuff you know what i mean but but if you get the sixth grader involved the fifth grader involved and you could have extra classes and and, and Go to the math class and do hydraulics. I'm speaking to the choir here. You yeah, know but I mean? it but may I... be, uh, you know, you're right, because that may be, uh, maybe it's not just the student. Maybe it's our instructors. Maybe we need to change how we teach. Uh, maybe we need to look at more immersive learnings. Maybe we need to figure out how do we get much more hands-on because most of the generations that we're looking to recruit now learn through visual. They learn through video. They learn through hearing and doing, right? This immersive kind of AR uh, um, and virtual reality, augmented reality type scenarios mixed with actual practical hands-on. So we need to uh, to be really cognizant of how we teach as well. No, we And we've seen that, boy, at the Academy, the, the PowerPoint's on its last breath. Uh, we, well, we just got re-energized. Uh, we had a bunch of customers asking us for CPR classes. And now the new CPR classes, you watch a video. And then you answer questions, you add a little bit that maybe the video, real life that the video didn't have, and then you move on. Matter of fact, when they're practicing, you run a video so that if they forget, they can just look up and listen, and then they, they can re-engage their brain. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. All right, moving on, because this is another, this is a very, this is a near and dear to our heart. Establish a comprehensive firefighter cancer strategy that invests in research, provides access to screening for firefighters and reduces and eliminates PFAS exposure, period. That's a biggie. That is a biggie. And there's a, as you noticed, it is sort of multifaceted as well. So looking at um, you know, addressing firefighter cancer. Cancer is, uh, 
now the number one killer of our firefighters who die each year. Um, 75% of the firefighters that we call line of duty death now are attributed to cancer each year. And so that number is pretty substantial. So we've got to address uh, our exposures. And PFOS is mentioned in the strategy, but we want to understand, yes, that must be eliminated, but that's that forever you know, chemical. It is something that is in our everyday life. It's also in our gear. It's an AFFF foam. You know, it's in a lot of uh, areas of our exposure. And so eliminating that is absolutely key. And having further development on our PPE, and we're down to just the moisture barrier. So the outer layer, the middle layer are both PFAS-free capable right now. We have the fabric to do that, but the moisture barrier is still a problem. And so that is something we are looking to research um, to be able to rectify. I can tell you um, that the bill that was just passed has specific instructions in it for um, USFA and what we are, are supposed to be doing with EPA and NIOSH. Um, so we are a, a sort of a tripartite um, government group that are supposed to be working the PFAS problem. And um, aside from that, the cancer issue, I will also tell you that uh, PFAS is not the only carcinogen. <laughs> and so it yeah. is important that we not put all our eggs in one basket uh, because we are exposed to many, many other things that are also carcinogenic. Um, if you haven't seen the IARC, the International Agency on Research for Cancer, um, deemed firefighting occupation yeah. as a carcinogen, not just the things we're exposed to, not a list of chemicals, the occupation itself is carcinogenic, okay? So we have to understand that, um, you know, if you start to look at it, you're like, okay, if you can get cancer, you can get PTSD, why would anyone want to do this job, right? So with this, we'll go back to our recruiting problem, but we have to start to think through, what does that mean? Well, is it also uh, not just our gear, but understanding our exposures, understanding cleaning our gear, understanding showering, uh, understanding all the things that science is telling us makes a difference. So it's not like we don't have any research on this. We have some, we need more, and we'll continue to facilitate that. The other thing you mentioned is screening. And we have to do better with um, cancer screening. Now, this is two-faceted. One is firefighters who don't have access to any screening because they don't have the appropriate health care. If they do have health care, it doesn't include screening for particular cancers, things like that. And then the other issue is there are some cancers for which there is no screening. Right. Pancreatic cancer is one of those. We find it, but you cannot yet be screened for it because there is no test. And so it's not like um, we look at prostate cancer. There's testing, right? We all look at, um, or males look at PSA levels. And so these are the kinds of things that this is sort of a multi-faceted uh, strategy. And if I may, real quick, um, Nick, we did have, a, we were uh, lucky to have the um, Firefighter Cancer Support Network on uh, with us. And one of the things they brought up was the fact that uh, they were finding that a lot of times as the occupation of a firefighter kind of put you in a position to uh, to brush off when anything was wrong with you, they mentioned that they were finding a lot of times that the uh, those in that position were not paying attention or listening to their bodies and then acknowledging that they did feel something. And that being another problem is this idea or this um, stereotype that they needed to basically buck up and and you know just deal with certain things rather than uh, acknowledge them and I thought that was very poignant um, about 
making sure that it kind of delves into the mental health aspect of not being afraid to say when you feel something or that something might be off or getting something checked out. Uh, Jamie, that's a great point. And I think that is absolutely spot on. We can't uh, allow what we've had, the stigma with mental health uh, forever, right? And we're just starting to overcome that stigma. It still exists, but we're starting to overcome it. We cannot have that play in continuously here. And I think you're spot on. I think it does. And so no one wants to be sick. No one wants to feel because there's some kind of mentality that if I'm sick, I'm weak. And that is not the case, right? And so we need to, to uh, look at this from a, a healthy um, perspective and a whole of, whole of well-being. I get, and I will tell you that when I watched the, uh, the speech on the cancers, it was, it, I don't want to say it was terrifying, but it woke, it woke you up. Um, these, these guys, they're monitoring pump operators. They're, they're recommending that the pump operator put something on their face. Uh, either just wear an air pack or put an, put something on your face. That's going to filter that. They looked at, they looked at the incident command team. They looked at the aides. They looked at the safety officer. They looked at the pump operators, the aerial operators, PIOs, all these people. And they've been monitoring these people. And these people, they're, they're building a case. And I, you know how that's going to go over. But they're building a case saying, if you're in this space, this even has public implications. Everybody likes coming and watching the fire. Pretty soon it's going to be, no. You don't want to know you need to go away and then how are we how are we going to protect you know how are we going to protect those those folks it was that was a very that was a pretty enlightening uh portion of of the the program was because again there were multiple it wasn't just one thing it was multiple and i'm glad you said the thing about pfas everybody's all ratcheted up about pfas and then, listen i I'm, I, I was exposed, but luckily, you know, I'm not like the Navy guys were or an aircraft guy and excited like that. But listen, I've, I've seen a lot more people get sick with other things. Um, and and the point that Jamie made about it's not me, it's that, that that's just a it's just an ache. It's just a this whatever. And and they don't they don't go for it. And uh, I, I think this the uh, I think the CDC and public health is going to be a partner with you in that, too. Right. With NIOSH. I think they're all in that in that game to try to figure it out. And again, you have the the again, we like the the cancer support network. They've done tremendous stuff and uh we we've done some stuff with them. We try to be supportive of them as as much as, as possible. All right, I'm gonna give you a quote from one of my favorite uh movies and let's see who could uh see who knows what this is from. I wish my head could forget what my eyes have seen. Right? If you remember the, the, the documentary on Detroit, that's the pump bus, the operator, Dave Parnell. Right? And he and when you the next uh in the next Detroit movie, it does a lot about what he talks about. So again, another thing we've talked about, which we think is when we've had some very close friends that we've lost. Um because of suicide. Again, professional provide behavioral health resources and suicide prevention initiatives for all firefighters. Uh, just so, so important. Yep, and that is, a, that is a huge one. So we do often in the fire service now, as I said, we're reducing the stigma 
But one of the things I, I want us to continue, obviously, uh, with the, the PTSD, assessing PTSD, often we have the addictions, uh, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or bad behavior, um, that is secondary, actually, to PTSD, right? So we're finding that often we're treating uh, symptoms rather than getting to the cause. And so looking for that baseline cause, which often is PTSD in our realm of work, and then, of course, dealing with the, the continuing suicide issue, um, we have to continue to focus on those. But having said that, I want us also to begin to focus on the pre. It's hard for us to keep talking on the after, right? The uh, Once you've got PTSD and, you know, those who have attempted and unfortunately those who have succeeded. But how about we deal, too, with the pre and doing some mental resilience building um, just like we do resilience build, building with our, our um, wellness fitness initiatives, those sorts of things, we need to do some of that mentally as well. And we need to do it beginning in recruit school. It's got to start with our students. The Olympics does it. The NFL does it. The um, uh, NBA does it. Uh, the major league ball players do it. Why are we not building in mental resilience in our new firefighters and paramedics? Because that is going to be absolutely key. The military is doing it. The army has a program called Ready and Resilient. Uh, it's available, you guys can, can look that up, Google it, um, Ready and Resilient, the army. Um, that program is, uh, is incredible. And it's for all of the soldiers, as well as their families, as well as their civilian employees. And it's, uh, it is an important piece that we understand. We have to build mental resilience because we have entire generations now that um, we have, we, and I'm guilty, parents have protected, you've not let them get hurt. We've uh, sheltered in many ways. Uh, they've not had bad things happen to them. If you don't have bad things happen to you, then you don't experience growing from those things and starting to learn that bad things can become opportunities rather than just being negatives that you can grow and evolve as a human being and your emotional intelligence is developed and you mature uh, even as leaders. But if we protect generations and we have, and we have them growing up on technology and not having human interaction, and then we had COVID, right? These things do not lend themselves to resilience mentally. And so when they begin to see things living from virtual or augmented reality, actual reality, they don't process it mentally as well, right? So we have to pay attention to that and learn to focus on some building some mental resilience right from recruit school and then carrying it throughout our careers. And and I'll, I'll jump on that board. You know, rewards come from hard work. <laughs> Just saying, you know, it kind of falls into that whole uh, protection stuff. And, you know, and, oh, you know, we can get down that. That's a whole day conversation. Um, now we're going to go into something I, I, I really like and talk about is create safe communities by implementing and enforcing code standards, especially in the wooey, wooey <laughs> and understand, <laughs> I'm trying, and understand the vulnerable populations providing affordable and by, by providing affordable and fire safe housing. This is, this is, this is right up. This is the five E's. This is this is getting ahead of it, building the the engineering, building the enforcement, and if you fail, and it doesn't work, you build a response. You're right, right on, absolutely right on. 
And so this one really does focus on the fire problem. And a lot of people, and I, I still cringe uh, when I hear somebody say, oh, fires are down. I'm going to tell you, fires are not down in this country. Oh. And even though our data, everybody says, oh, the data say, well, our data are pretty much worthless. The data in the infrasystem, yes, it's there. And yes, it's all we have right now. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, across this country, we've had, um, unfortunately, uh, we've made it so complex and we've band-aided a bad data system for a very long time that we now have, it's almost overwhelming to try to put data in on a fire. Uh, when you have to sit there and just make sure, you know, firefighters will sit there and make sure they're entering data. Please don't let that light turn red or please don't open another window, right? <laughs> so they're very careful about it. And so consequently, we don't get the fire module filled out. And we... Yep have data that appear that fires are down because we're not actually recording all the fires. And so we've seen this. I've studied it in every department. Uh, we know that it's happening. And so fires are not down in this country. In fact, they're just the opposite. They're up. And our deaths from fires, even though we have uh, percentage-wise, and if we look for you know spans of years, yes, fires are down from you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago. But our deaths percentage-wise are increasing again. Yeah. And what does that mean? That means that we have um, less focus on our vulnerable populations because a lot of the people, two thirds, in fact, of the people who are dying are people of color, poor, and a huge percentage of children and elderly. Yeah. And so we have to pay attention to our public housing. We know there's a, a little over half a million uh, public housing uh, buildings in this country that HUD tells us are still in inventory that have not yet been retrofitted because they were built before the 1992 uh, Fire Safety Act. And so we have to be cognizant of these kinds of structures that still exist in many of our cities and the population who lives there. And one of the things that we say often is that public safety, uh, or let me say it another way, um, safe and affordable housing should not be mutually exclusive. Okay. If I try to make housing safe, it should not now price it out of the range of people who can afford to live there. And so these are things that we are, are watching and that often the builders will tell us, oh no, it's gonna cost X, 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 and it will now have to, you know, we have to uh, charge more. And we know that that's not in fact what the research um, shows. And so we really need to continue to focus on the fact that America is still burning, and that's not just the structural environment. We've already talked about the interface. Uh, as you just said, it's easier to say interface than wooey, by the way. It is. <laughs> oh, there you go. So just call it the interface and, and we'll, we'll extrapolate from there. But we do have a fire problem and codes and standards um, are going to be an absolute must have. We need better, better uh, direction from the federal government on this. We need better dissemination to the states and we need more consistent implementation all the way down to the, the local levels, and then heavy authority to enforce. And That's, so these are things we've got to focus on. We, one of our uh, bread and butter uh, operations for studies are small, small community fire departments. Uh, a lot of times uh, we're in commonwealths. So there may not be a fire marshal even allowed. Uh, it, it, the fire marshal comes out of the state. And so there, there's a lot of, well, who does, who looks at this? If you have this problem, who do you call? I call the, 
quite, you know, it didn't, it, it really didn't make, here's a couple of key points. So our friends from UL have proven that you have less time. You, if you don't have a sprinkler system, doesn't matter if you have a smoke detector, because it's not about the smoke detector. It's about the movement and the, and the, and the thermal dynamics. You have less time to get out of your house right now than you've ever had in history. Ever. Ever had in history. Which That's, means your chance of dying is greater. And right? we've had, in the study, another study, again, I'm telling you, you got to download this QR code and just watch the whole thing. The, the second part to that is there are more people dying as a result of fires. Now, sometimes they get, you know, they, they go to the hospital because this actually happened to me. They go to the hospital and they go home and then they get pneumonia and then they go back to the hospital a month later and they, they don't tie it back to the fire. They tie it that 78 year old guy, they, they counted as ammonia, as pneumonia, right? It didn't, they didn't tie it in together. So again, it's, the numbers are still up there and the numbers are still going up. It is sad though, that it's a good thing and a bad thing. We take the COVID numbers out. The good news is we were, tra we were tracking down on line of duty deaths, right? Um, the ups very upsetting part is more firefighters die by their own hand than by something, even their heart giving out or other medical problems. Right, it's just, it can just, uh, it just kills you. All right, I'm gonna read the next one and I don't understand it, so I need your help. All right, so I think I know what it means. So elevate the fire service in federal policy development to an equal basis with law enforcement. And, the, and you guys changed, this actually started with a strategy Right was changed during the summit to uh, from endure to elevate, and I don't understand what what's that? Is that like the cops and us getting support when law enforcement gets support or something else? No, that's exactly. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it a different way. So even, uh, I'll tell you, I said that uh, USFA sits inside FEMA, right? And FEMA sits inside Homeland Security. Well, what you may not know or remember is that FEMA used to be, or USFA used to be equal to FEMA, all right? We were yes. on the same level as FEMA, right? And then when Homeland Security was formed is when we were reduced and put inside FEMA, though we're not a response organization, nor are we a disaster organization. <clears throat> were put inside FEMA, inside Homeland Security. Every other component inside Homeland Security is a law enforcement component. Across, in fact, law enforcement, the DOJ is all law enforcement, right? Yeah. They have their own cabinet position, their own, um, and then across government, there are other law enforcement agencies throughout federal government. We are the only true fire organization, even though you have firefighters in DOD, you have firefighters in DOI, you have firefighters in AG, you have um, you know, NIST who has a, a fire lab, you have ATF who does some arson investigation, and yet we're the only, um, all of that together is less than 10% of the firefighters in the country. All the rest of them are represented by USFA, and yet we're one little uh, piece inside FEMA. And so that's what that was talking about. It is how can we elevate 
uh, the whole of the fire service when we can't even draw together and have uh, a single entity or at least recognize the fire components across federal government. And so this is more outside a USFA uh, led effort. Uh, so this is uh, that sixth uh, strategy that is gonna be dependent on that fire service one voice. I got you. Because again, you guys got knocked down. You 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 were able to be up here on the, the, the you were at the adult table. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're working our way back. All right, so we have a we do have a question. Yep. Um, want to do like the do do the lithium, uh, Jamie? Yep. If you don't so mind. Uh, Jeff asks, has the USFA had any input or focus on the rise in lithium ion battery fires? He says that he knows many organizations seem to be working on this, but he'd like to hear your feedback on the current problem. They just responded to one a few hours ago in a college dormitory. Oh, wow. Yes. So, yes, we have um, several um, pieces of messaging, but we are messaging based on the work that UL and FDNY have been doing. So we're not about in reinventing the wheel when there's research efforts already underway. We are having those conversations and pulling people together. Uh, so that again, that one voice comes together and we all focus on one problem. That is being done in a new effort that we have called the Fire and Life Safety Communicators Initiative, where all fire and life safety communicators have come together to make sure we're translating research into practice and research into safety messaging to the public. And that we're not just talking to ourselves because firefighters cannot change this. This is down to the public behavior, human behavior, and how we treat these, uh, this technology. And so we are leveraging that. We are very well aware. We're very much in the circle of the lithium ion battery discussion. But here's uh, one of our biggest efforts. Right now, because you said you just had a fire, whoever asked the question, um, you can't even enter that into the data system because there's nowhere for you to put it. it was a lithium ion battery, right? This is what I'm talking about. It all goes back to data. And I think that's our role. Uh, with our national data system is that we accurately document these kinds of um, cause and origins of fires so that we can have then the data to be able to make change. How do I get rules and regulations without appropriate data? Right now, FDNY is reporting. Right now, we've got heavy research over at UL, uh, Fire uh, Safety Research Institute, right? And this is what is gonna help us inform policy. But if we can't track these cases, then you don't have the leverage to change regulation. So we are very much in the midst of all of this conversation, but again, all with one voice. All right, folks, we have like seven minutes left. What I'd like to do is if someone has a question, unless Jamie, do you have anything stacked? I do not. I just, uh, Jeff also had commented on the reporting, which you just you just touched, touched on. Um, but I did have, uh, Pete, allow, uh, just wanted to let you know that his students arranged to share the broadcast of Springfield in the area fire station. So thank you for doing that. And um, uh, I, sorry, sorry, I just, I just lost it. Um, we also had the University of New Haven uh, shared that as well tonight. So thank you very much, guys. Very good. All right, here's your, who's got a question? Here's your shot. If any of those students are listening, I'd love to hear maybe if Gen Z has any uh, opinions on the recruitment issues. <laughs> Absolutely. If anybody'd like to uh, add in a, a question, they can feel free to unmute themselves. Either unmute themselves and call it out or send it to-, to Or uh, you can Jane. put it right in the chat. It looks like Dave. I see a Dave with a hand up. 
Steve, you got a question? I don't have them on my screen, so go ahead, Dave. And I don't know that he has audio. Uh, no, I think he's un he unmuted himself, but I don't hear anything. He did uh, put in the chat. Thank you very much for speaking tonight. Thank you for acknowledging that suicide is the number one non-natural cause of death for firefighters. It's just never thought, you know, 45 years ago, I never in my wildest dream thought that that would be a topic of conversation at the national level. Uh, just crazy. It's unfortunate, but we can change this trajectory. We have to be alert. We have to be bold enough to ask, um, right? I know that, that those conversations are not comfortable, but this is one of those spaces that we all have to become comfortable being uncomfortable. In fact, I used that with my staff today about a diff different issue. This is one of those spaces, not a comfortable conversation, but care enough to be comfortable being uncomfortable and ask, are you thinking about killing yourself? Because if you can starkly ask someone, you can jar them into thinking another way, right? Or at least you can know so you can intervene. So these are the kinds of things that when you have a gut feeling, trust your gut and care enough to ask. Um, and don't, don't just say, oh, this can't be happening, right? We have to be bold in this, uh, in this area and, uh, and, you know, take care of each other, take care of our own. Absolutely. Well said. Um, looks like we've got one last question. Dave uh, wrote it in. He says that, um, is there a way to end? Uh, he said, we've make, made great strides in reducing discrimination based on gender, race, and, and height. Can, is there a way to end age-based discrimination in fire service? <laughs> yeah, no. I, 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 uh, I wasn't aware that that was going on. Oh, he says um, that in some <laughs> states um, ban career firefighters past age 35. Dave, is that the state of New Jersey? I'm, I'm not sure which state that is. Might be. Ban hiring them, I'm assuming, is what yeah. you can't you can't get a job in the federal system, I think, at after age at age 30. I gotta I gotta tell you though, I don't wanna be the kid that I was 40 years ago. Not right now. I'm not built for it, I'm not set up for it. Um at I do have today. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say at the end of the day, we want um, you know, obviously um uh, to talk about people, um, all people. Uh, whether they're, you know, green and purple polka dot and, you know, whatever age um, that they can do the job. And I right. think that is, uh, you know, having good mental capacity uh, and faculties as well as physical, um, you know, physical ability. So once again, the direct, the superintendent of the National Fire Academy is reaching out and asking if there's anything you'd like to see, any program you would like to see at the National Fire Academy, drop them a line. The very good meeting today. Lots of stuff on the on the burner. Uh, cool stuff coming uh, in in a multiple different forms. Um, but uh, if you have an idea, go ahead and send it to them. And, and I'm going to say this is your what uh, Superintendent Gablix would say to you. This is your National Fire Academy, and right. so we do want to hear from you. Uh, right. And what you want to see, because we are changing the face. Uh, and I've, I've told Eric's, if there are classes that we've got, you know, only a very few people signing up, maybe it's time to stop teaching those. Let's put in the ones that are got waiting lists, right? Let's do more. So we really want to meet the needs of the fire service. So let us know what, uh, what do you need? We want to be agile and we want to be 
um, effective for the fire service. And we had that very conversation today. Several instructors said, where are we on this? Where are we on that? In some cases, there were developed excellent programs other by other people that get funded by the same folks as the National Fire Academy. And they he offered to connect them up. And another thing is that it's in the burner, it's in the burner, it's in the burner. So uh and the and the place is changing. And you know, we saw that uh with our some of our past guests. It had to change before and it has to change, it's changing now. So that's uh wonderful. Listen, I I want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh I mean this has got to be outside the normal federal <laughs> plan for executives uh, to spend, you know, an hour with a, a bunch of folks from, from all over the state and all over the place now. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for explaining everything. I think it's robust. I think it's exciting. Um, I think there are several, I, I know I can see several movers and shakers that are still here and there's other ones that were here before that would be would be happy to help out um and and jump in on any of those things oh before i forget i almost forgot because i would get in trouble <laughs> oh uh, so on april 14th and 15th at the national fire academy the executive fire officer and leader symposium is going on uh we announced this last month we wanted to make sure we announced it tonight uh don't get reimbursed for training however while you're there uh they'll put you up and uh in one of their deluxe accommodations uh you do you will need to uh pick up the food tab for the two days but i've seen the list of who's coming and who's talking i'm going you need to be there these are the people that are on the edge and taking us to where we're going um similar to some of the some of the stuff from the summit so it is april 14th and 15th it's a friday saturday all right again um transportation's on you your department and food is on you lodgings on the uh on the fire academy it's gonna be a great uh, great two days i'm really looking forward to uh to seeing that so thank you so much for coming thank you uh, thank you for having me day. and uh Thanks everyone for listening in and we welcome uh, welcome your feedback, reach out to us. So thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. That's what we do. <laughs> thank you guys. <laughs>